Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can come to you in prayer. We're thankful that you are the source of our stability and strength and that we live our lives to glorify you through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and you've given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us. And, Father, we're thankful for the ministry that he has because without his ministry we would not be able to understand your word to the degree that we do and we would not be able to uh, live the spiritual life uh, that we have, and because everything in the spiritual life in this dispensation is related to his ministry. Father, we're thankful for the ministry of this congregation, for the work of so many who make this uh, church operate, and for the response of so many to the teaching of your word. Now, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged as we learn to think in terms of your word and evaluate the uh, issues and challenges and events of life through the framework of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the responsibilities of a pastor is not only to teach the word, and some people just stop there. I, every now and then I get the sense that people say, you know, just teach, teach the Bible. But it's not just about teaching the Bible. Ultimately, if we believe Romans 12.2, we have to learn how to think biblically. We have to be. A, we have to learn what the word says. We have to learn from both the uh, both the explicit teaching of the word, but we also have to learn from the patterns and from the examples that are that are given in Scripture. We have to learn to think as God has revealed that we should think in His word and not. Uh, just on the basis of our own backgrounds, our own experience, our own uh, prejudices, and everybody has that when they get when they're when they're saved and they begin to study the Word, and we have to learn to let the Word of God completely reshape our our values, our priorities, um, and in terms of what we what we do. That means we have to learn to think and to exercise discernment. And that's probably the one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. Because there are a lot of people who, as I, as I observe people grow and mature in the spiritual life, what I observe is that people want to hear the Bible that confirms and validates their prejudices. They don't want to hear the arguments that are set forth in the Word for taking certain positions, especially in relation to controversial topics, controversial issues that take place within history. And yet, if you don't talk about those things, you really haven't done the job that you should be doing as a pastor. And so every now and then, there is a confluence of events that occur uh, outside in the, in the real world in terms of our own time period that sort of call for a little biblical uh, analysis so that we can look at things. And to, it's interesting how these things came together today. I had a, uh, uh, an interesting day or an interesting time this morning. But first of all, I would ask some of you, some of you know the answer to this question, but um, we today is November the 1st. Yesterday, obviously, was October the 31st, and what is significant about October the 31st? And don't tell me Halloween. What? That's right. Yesterday was uh, the anniversary of the uh, Martin Luther 
not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest who wanted to challenge a number of uh, teachings in the Roman Catholic Church, and so he went to the local bulletin board, which wasn't online. It was the front door of the local church, and he nailed on the front door of the local church 95 debating points. That's what a thesis was, a debating point. And that is the kickoff of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. So that's significant about October 31st. It was All Hallows' Eve, and he did that because today is All Saints' Day, All Hallows' Day, and that would have been a holiday in the Roman Catholic Church, and so that was a time when people would be coming to church and they would see the um, these debating points on the front door of the church. So that is how... Uh, why he he uh, uh, selected that particular day. There's another uh, anniversary yesterday. I mentioned I've mentioned this before, but it's not one that's going to stand out in most people's mind. And that is that yesterday was the day that the it was the anniversary of the time when the uh, British War Council in 1917 finalized the wording for the Balfour Declaration. And then tomorrow, November 2nd, is the date that is on the letter that uh, Arthur Balfour, the foreign secretary for the British government at that time, sent to Lord Rothschild, who was the one of the leaders in the British Zionist uh, movement. And this is one of the most significant events in all the 20th century. And I think that if we're looking at events from a biblical viewpoint where everything, everything turns on God's promise to Abraham, Thus, Israel has to be at the center point of our view of history. Everything, even in the church age, even if Israel is not God's uh, direct, uh, obedient people today, that doesn't mean that, that anything has changed in terms of them being God's people or the promises to Abraham regarding uh, blessing and cursing evil uh, Israel, that those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel uh, will be cursed. And I think that when you look at the when we get done with a heavenly perspective, I think that we're going to look back on the 20th century as the century where there was a historical pivot in relation to God's plan for Israel, because it's in the 20th century that you have the restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and that has to take place and be in place before. The tribulation, that final seven years that God predicted uh, in terms of Daniel's 70th week and the, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And it, because it begins with what kicks that period off that we refer to as a time of uh, the great tribulation, Jeremiah referred to it as the time of, of Jacob's wrath, that it is in that, that time period that uh, God brings history uh, to a conclusion, and it begins when the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, enters into a peace treaty, a covenant with Israel. That's what starts the uh, stopwatch on the last seven years, starts that countdown. And this uh, this means that for a the Antichrist to sign a treaty with Israel, there has to be a nation Israel, and there has to be a government, there has to be an authority in the land, and um, for him to desecrate the temple halfway through the tribulation period means, as we've studied, that there has to be a rebuilt temple. 
And, uh, of course, none of this is uh, a surprise to most of you, but uh, it shows that, that I believe that, that the 20th century, that the critical event, whether we're talking about the Balfour Declaration, we're talking about the Holocaust and the role that the Holocaust played, the um, independence, the declaration of a, of a Jewish state in 1948, and everything that's happened, you just go back and you read history over the last 60 years, and it has truly been dominated by the, by the Middle East conflict. That has been the centerpiece. We, we may focus on lots of other things that have happened, but when we get a little time perspective, we're going to look back and see that the one thing that was a constant from 1948 to the present and on beyond is always this problem in in Israel, and what kicked that off really was the uh, was the Balfour Declaration. Now this mo- morning, I had an interesting meeting. I got invited to breakfast this morning at the uh, personal residence of the Consul General of Israel here in Houston, and Ambassador Arthur Link, who's a former Israeli ambassador to Azerbaijan, was in town, and so uh, uh, Mayor Shlomo who I've gotten to know this, this last year, he knows of my interest in uh, uh, international law, San Remo, the Balfour Declaration, all of this, thought that I would uh, enjoy getting to know uh, Ambassador Link because uh, Ambassador Link's current position is that he is the director of international, the International Law Division for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for the State of Israel. And he's, he was on the... Um, Palmer Commission, which was a U.N. commission that looked into, uh, investigated the Gaza Strip uh, flotilla uh, problem a couple of years ago, and that came out, it surprised everybody, the Israelis especially, because uh, the U.N. came out in their favor that they didn't do anything uh, wrong, and that was uh, uh, quite a shock. But there were two Israelis, two Palestinian, two representatives of the Palestinian Authority, and a number of other uh, people on that commission, but he served on that commission. He's he's had a number of critical roles uh, for Israel in in critical international negotiations, uh, defending Israel before with charges before the uh, international court uh, at the Hague and other things of that nature. So he is somebody who has um, is knowledgeable, somebody who has uh, been in a lot of different positions. And there were I, I knew two or three of the other uh, leaders in the Jewish community that were present. We had a a nice uh, breakfast this morning, and we talked about a lot of different uh, current events, mostly things that were going on, on in the, just right now, uh, in the present. Now, before I go any further in talking about what we discussed this morning, I want to remind you of a couple of passages in Scripture. The first passage is Zechariah uh, chapter uh, two, verse eight. Zechariah chapter two, verse eight, where the Lord says. Where, it, where we read, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now that phrase, that idiom, apple of his eye, the apple of the eye is the pupil. The pupil is um, one of the most sensitive parts of the eye, and so the apple of the eye is an extremely sensitive area that demands protection. And so the imagery here is of Israel as, uh, as 
something that is prized by God but but is in a vulnerable position that must be protected by God. And, of course, that promise is uh, stated at the, at the time of uh, the uh, Jewish return to the land from their captivity in Babylon. And it's, many people believe it also has a prophetic, a prophetic significance because it focus, uh, I think it focuses forward on the future restoration of, of Israel, that, that particular section there, but that gets beyond what I want to talk about tonight. All of that is based on the promise, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the covenant with Abraham. And these promises are true. Israel, the Jewish people, whether they're in a state of obedience to God or disobedience to God, are still God's chosen people. There is a unique role for the Jewish people in God's plan. From the time that God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 on, God set the Jewish people apart for this unique role. Promises that God made to Abraham are not forgotten, even though it may seem that God has put them on the shelf for a time. Same thing happens in any of our lives. In fact, that's one of the great applications from looking at how God has dealt with Israel over time is that no matter how chaotic things became, no matter how horrible things became in their lives, no matter how defeated circumstances seemed to indicate that they were, God never went back on his promise. This is the context for Jeremiah's famous statement in uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 as he is uh, surveying the ruins of Jerusalem and the destruction of the southern kingdom after the Babylonian assault, and everything looks like the end of the Jewish people, the end of the the promise to God. It look, if you look, if you're going to base everything on circumstance, you would think, well, this is over with. There's no restoration. God failed us. There's no protection. What are we going to do? And it would just like it, everything was horrible, and you wouldn't blame Jeremiah one little bit if he just sat down and threw a little pity party right there on the hills overlooking Jerusalem. But what he says, as he looks there, he says, This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. Uh, Thy mercies fail not. Um, how's that go again? I say this all the time. Um, what? Morning and evening, thy mercies fail not. Great, great is thy faithfulness. The point being, great is thy faithfulness. And... God is always faithful to his promises, and he's always faithful to us in those promises, that even when it looks the darkest, even when it looks like we're going through the most difficult times, even when we want to throw our own little pity parties, God never goes back on his promises. God is always going to be present there and fulfill his promises, and the same thing is true for Israel. Now, if we believe that God is the God of history, and if we believe that God is a faithful God who is true to his promises and true to his covenant to Israel then we believe that Israel today is important and that we as believers should be the most supportive of, of the Jewish people and of, this, of the state of, of Israel and understanding what is going on uh, in the world. When we wake up and we read different news reports or we hear different things on the, on the radio, we need to understand some things that are, are going on and look at these things from, a, from the background of, uh, of a biblical framework. So as um, we sat down at breakfast today, and Ambassador Link went over uh, various things he wanted to talk about, and I'm just going to hit a couple of the high points. First of all, he talked about the UNESCO vote yesterday. 
And the at the uh, UNESCO, for those of you who don't know, stands for the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. UNESCO is one of 21 UN agencies. The IAEA, which is the International Atomic uh, Energy uh, Agency, the uh, World Health Organization, a uh, number of other uh, uh, agencies, some of which aren't quite so crucial, some of which are very important, are all, are all agencies of the UN. And there was a vote that was taken uh, yesterday uh, in, uh, in in France, in Paris, where the, uh, the vote was 107 in favor of admitting the Palestinian uh, Palestinians as a state. Now, that's not the role of, of UNESCO. It's not their role to uh, to determine who's a state and who's not a state. And yet the Palestinians have this new strategy that is ex- they've got a great game plan. And what they want to do is they want they've uh, they've applied for uh, recognition as a state to to the UN. That's not ro- the role of the UN. We'll get into that maybe a little later on this evening. But that's not their role is to recognize states. States are recognized ultimately by other states. And in fact, according to uh, Article 4 of the UN Charter, where it identifies the characteristics of a state, one of which is that they have to uh, have a history of being supportive of the goal of world peace. Another is that they have a unified, a, a government over a unified uh, country. Those are just two things that don't really apply to the Palestinians in uh, any way, shape, or form. In fact, you may not know this. I just learned this in uh, yesterday morning. I spent an hour getting briefed on some things by a, a lawyer in Israel, and I learned that uh, uh, there are eight different Arab tribes that are part of the Palestinian Authority. And we all know that these Arab tribes just really don't get along. So the the very the very idea that you're going to have a unified Palestinian state is just is just absurd. It, it, it's just never going to happen, not in my opinion. Um, so there was a vote. They, they, the Palestinians applied to UNESCO uh, to be recognized as a state, to be a member, and the vote was 107 in favor, 14 against, and 52 uh, abstentions. So, of course, it, um, uh, it passed, and they became a member of UNESCO. Now, something interesting happened at that point. But I want to review a couple of things because this is the main point I'm, I'm focusing in all, all this, is that, number one, there is a legal procedure outlined in the UN Charter for the uh, and criterion for the recognition of a state that was ignored. Uh, second, there is a uh, purpose statement for the uh, for UNESCO in their charter that was ignored, and then um, uh, and then they so they get uh, the Palestinians get recognized and they get um, brought brought into UNESCO as a as a member. Now, their strategy is to go to each of these 21 agencies and to do the same thing. See, they're, they're picking these things off at the lowest level, and if they get recognized by every one of these agencies, then that makes recognition at the, uh, at the General Assembly even more certain. They also announced yesterday that they're going to appeal to the Security Council. I think there are 17 members of the Security Council that anyway, they have to have nine votes on the Security Council to be admitted as a member of the UN. They only have eight at this point. They're probably never going to get nine. 
So they will go to the, what they really want to do. Their strategy is to force the U, the U.S. to vote no, uh, because they want to make the U.S. look bad. And then when they get rejected at the uh, at the Security Council level, then they will go to the uh, U.N. General Assembly, and there it is just it, it's it's a foregone conclusion that they will get recognized as a state because with all of the Arab countries, all the Islamic countries, all uh, Latin American countries seem to all be lining up that way. Even if the United States had 50 votes, one for each state, and even if uh, all of the EU had whatever it is, 17 votes for e- there, and, and all of uh, all the Russian republics have all their votes, and they'll vote for the Palestinians. It's just a foregone conclusion, and when it goes to the General Assembly, that they'll be recognized as a uh, as a state, and that's just going to completely um, exacerbate all of the problems in the Middle East. This is not a path to solution. This is a path that the Palestinians have chosen to do an end run around negotiations so they don't have to uh so they don't have to uh give up anything uh to the to the Israelis and it, this is just going to make any kind of peace in the Middle East uh more difficult to achieve and the other thing that's going to do is it increases the delegitimization of Israel so so that Israel becomes more and more marginalized in each of these Votes so that Israel ends up standing alone with the United States and a half a dozen islands out in the Pacific and, and uh, hopefully Britain or France or one or two other uh, con- uh, European countries, and that's it. And so the the, the approach here is to completely uh, completely isolate uh, isolate Israel. So as we talked, he went over some of the things there and some of the strategies that were going on in the. Uh, in, in the UN and the, the UNESCO vote. And it's going to be interesting when it comes down to the bottom line here, because you're going to look at the World, World Health Organization, which is a major, major organization. And what's going to kick in, as it did yesterday, is that in 1994, President Bill Clinton signed into law a piece of legislation that stated that if any country or if any UN agency recognized a Palestinian state, then that agency would be immediately defunded by the United States government. And that kicked in yesterday afternoon. This wasn't an Obama decision. This wasn't a State Department decision. This was, this was all set up uh, from 1994, and it, we actually surprised everybody and followed the rule of law. But that upset everybody, all all the liberals, so to speak, certain the radical anti-Israel edge of the liberals. There were several uh, newspaper reports and media reports that indicated that the reporters are ignorant of history as usual and that uh, they don't understand why this had to happen and why we couldn't just ignore that. In fact, one, uh, one reporter uh, emphasize why are we doing this? It just, the Jewish people are just 1% of the U.S. This doesn't do anything for us. It's just going to make everything worse. In other words, it's the standard blame, um, blame Israel approach to, um, to things. I may have to, have to, uh, plug in here and run a sound video a little later on, Eddie, if we get there. But, um, uh, th- this is what they want to do. They, this is their approach: is always blame Israel. Whenever anything happens, it's always Israel's fault. Uh, Abba, 
Eben, who was the uh, one, the first ambassador to the UN from Israel, made a famous statement that if uh, if <clears throat> the Palestinians put forth a, a resolution for the UN to vote on uh, that the Earth was flat, that um, uh, and it was Israel's fault, that nearly every uh, nation in in the UN would vote uh, to support that, uh, except for a few who who would just abstain because they weren't sure. Uh, so this is, uh, but the problem here is that I want, that I'm really getting at is this absolute disregard for the rule of law. So as, um, as the ambassador was, was talking and he went on to speak about, uh, some of the things that were, uh, some of the other things that were going on, uh, he began to talk about, um, you know the, the the whole issue of the the UN recognizing a uh, Palestinian state, what that would look like for Israel in the future, and the impact that that would probably have. And at that point, uh, I raised a question because he he had brought up the fact that Article Four of the UN Charter uh, states precisely what a, what a nation should be, and this they, the Palestinians don't fit that. And I and I raised the question. Is anyone doing anything to challenge the legality of UN recognition of a Palestinian state on the basis of the of Article 4 or on the basis of Article 80 in the UN Charter? Article 80 was written in the UN Charter in 1945 that all of the laws, all of the treaties, all of the uh, mandates that were established by the League of Nations after World War 1 could not be changed by uh, the United Nations. And that means that based on the Treaty of Severus, the Treaty of uh, the San Remo resolutions coming out of World War One, that compl- took all of the wording of the Balfour Declaration uh, took and, and put it within those league internationally, international treaties and international documents, giving it the force of international law. The, the Balfour Declaration originally only stated British policy, but by... That when the San Remo resolutions in, on April 25th of 1920 at San Remo, the four principal powers, which were Japan, England, France, and Italy, met with the United States and Observer, met at San Remo to resolve the problems of the, 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 the territory that had formerly been part of the Ottoman Empire and where the boundaries would be, where those states would be, and what they would do with the pe- people's who inhabited that territory, uh, formerly the Ottoman Empire. At the Treaty of Paris, Versailles Treaty, at, I'm excuse me, at Paris, uh, at the, at the uh, meeting in Paris, which resulted in the Versailles Treaty, uh, the, the victorious powers from World War I were given the, author- the legal authority to restructure the boundaries in Europe. But they did not have the time or take the time to go as far as solving the problems of the Ottoman Empire so that the the restructuring of the Ottoman Empire was left to or put off to uh, the San Remo uh, meeting in 1920. And at the San Remo meeting, they not only uh, adopted and included all of the Balfour Declaration word for word into the San Remo Resolution, but the San Remo Resolution was then accepted completely by... um, by the League of Nations, 51 nations uh, affirmed uh, the um, 
San Remo Resolution and the United States in 1924 in an agreement with Great Britain also uh, recognized the San Remo Resolution. Now, what that means is that San Remo not only talked about the fact that everything uh, not only west of the Jordan River, but all of the territory east of the Jordan River, what is now the uh, Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, all of that was to be set aside for the Jewish people. Everything else around it was to go to the Arabs, and uh, King Faisal at that time signed off on that. He and uh, Chaim Weissman signed an agreement in January of 1919 that a reciprocal agreement that if the Jewish people would support the Arabs and their claim for for national homeland, that the Arab that the Arabs would in turn support the Jewish claim for a national homeland in, in Palestine, which at that time included both sides uh, of the Jordan River. And then, due to international pressure, the British under Churchill, as Foreign Secretary, had to uh, carve up. The, uh, and split Palestine between the West and the East, and they gave the East to the Hashemites because of uh, various uh, failures that had occurred in uh, Syria under the, um, under the French mandate. But the, the San, Remo con- San Remo Resolution set the boundaries for Syria, uh, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. They also defined all of the regulations for the mandates, for the French mandate, over Syria and Lebanon, and the British mandate over what was then called Mesopotamia, but later that was changed to Iraq, and and Palestine. So to ignore that, to ignore what was done in San Remo in terms of inclu- its inclusion of Balfour terminology within uh, within San Remo, basically uh, delegitimizes every or should delegitimize everything else if you believe in the rule of law. So what's happening is that gets delegitimized. So the reason I'm giving you that as background is when I ask this question of the of the ambassador, and this is a really good guy, okay? I want to make that point clear. He's a really good guy. He is part of one of the most conservative ad- political parties and administrations in Israel. And I asked that question regarding Article uh, Article 80 of the U.N. Charter, and he said, well, that just refers to the Balfour Declaration. Nobody wants to talk about it, so that's irrelevant. That, that was his answer. Then he went on. We talked about other things related to uh, uh, Israel, some things related to Turkey, things related to uh, Iran. And then as we as we broke up and we were going out, I had a chance to just visit with him for just a uh, just brief couple of minutes. And I said, well, what I was referring to there wasn't just in terms of the Balfour Declaration. And then I went, you know, explained it's, that it was made part of international law. And I asked him if he was familiar with the work of Jacques Gauthier or um, uh, Howard Grief, who are two legal experts. Dr. Gauthier wrote his doctoral dissertation over a period of almost 20 years at the uh, law school at the University of Geneva on who has legal authority over Jerusalem. And Howard Grief has done the same thing in relationship to the rest of Israel. And this position was basically forgotten after uh, the beginning of World War II and recovered by the end of the 80s, and more and more people are getting on board with this right now, I asked him this. Remember, this is the director of the International Law Department of the Ministry of Fine Arts for Israel, and he said, I haven't heard of either one of them. And when I raised the issue about it, he said, he said, that's not winnable. He said, 
you know, my job is to sell things on Fifth Avenue, and if it doesn't sell on Fifth Avenue, we can't go for it. Now, I thought about that a lot during the rest of the morning because you take that, you take that in conjunction with what the reporter said about about the uh, law passed in the Clinton administration to defund any U.N. agency that uh, recognizes a Palestinian state. And all of this is evidence of a malignancy at the core of Western civilization, which is the refusal to live according to the rule of law. Law, in all of these things, there is set international law. Whether you like the law or not, if you don't like the law, change the law. But you can't ignore the law. We can't pick and choose which laws we will obey and which laws we won't obey just because we don't like them. I mean, somebody over here may be uh, hurt negatively or negatively impacted by a, sp- a certain law. Well, it really doesn't bother me, and I'm too busy. I'm working 70 hours a week, so I'm not going to get too caught up by the fact that this person over here is being uh, treated uh, unjustly by some law. Uh, just ignore the law. But the next week, the next week, maybe that law is impacting me. And I'm, I, I can't, and I, I say, well, I just want to ignore the law. We can't pick and choose what laws we want to obey. We have to live according to the rule of law, how it applies to everybody. And if we don't like the law, we either, we only should have two options. One is change the law. The other is to live within the law. But we don't have the option of ignoring the law at all. That is what led to Nazi Germany. That's what led to the to breakdowns of many other uh, nations, many other empires over time. We have to maintain a firm conviction that the law is the king as Protestant Christians. This takes us back to a foundational doc- document written by Samuel Rutherford in uh, 1647, I believe, called Lex Rex, The Law is King. And that was a complete reversal of how rulers in Western civilization had thought of the relationship of the king to law. Up to that that point, the kings thought that it was rex lex, the king is law, that the king is above the law. And what Samuel Rutherford and others were, were arguing for is that everyone in a nation is under the law. Everyone in the nation is under the law, and there are absolutes. But what happens, and I want to pull things together here in terms of several things we've studied lately, when you live in a culture that is dominated by Romans 119 people, by Romans 119, I'm talking about those who are denying the evidence around them that God exists, and they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What takes the place of truth is fantasy. And you get a culture that lives on the basis of fantasy rather than on the basis of reality. And fantasy becomes addictive. And the more you live on fantasy, the more you will fantasize. And that fantasy increases and increases until, uh, as you're just wanting to make things up, however they are, this week you don't like these laws, so we'll ignore them. Next week we don't like another set of laws, so we'll ignore them. And the next thing you know... There's a collapse of, of, the, of the civilization because there are no absolutes anymore, and it will fall apart from the inside, and then what you get is a tyrant who will come in and impose 
a, a tyranny upon the upon his subjects in order to restore order. This is a pattern that was seen in Germany in the 20s and 30s. This is the same uh, kind of pattern, I believe, that will characterize the rise of the Antichrist uh, in the uh, end time period. I'm not saying that we're near that, but this is the same kind of scenario, the same kind of pattern. And the same thing happens in an individual soul. Whether you are a, a, a unbeliever or if you are a believer operating on the sin nature, you operate, and I, when we're operating on the sin nature, operate on fantasy. We've decided that God really doesn't know what he's talking about when it, when it comes to sin, and I'm going to choose to sin because there are no consequences and there, uh, there are no problems and there's no, uh, there's no dangers here, and I'm just going to have a much happier life if I live uh, in carnality on the basis of my sin nature than if I don't. See, at that point, we're lying to ourselves. At that point, we're living on fantasy. We're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And the more you live and walk according to the flesh, the more you and I live on the basis of, of lies, lies we tell ourselves, lies that we play on a little uh, tape machine up in our head over and over again that we can do. And the more we set this up as a habit pattern, uh, the worse it gets, and it begins to just uh, have a snowball effect. This is what has happened internationally right now in terms of Israel, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and more and more nations operate on the basis of this fantasy. We see it economically. Uh, right now we've got just this, this whole mess in Greece and the other uh, pigs, nations, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Uh, that's what the PIGS, P-I-I-G-S, stands for. Uh, as a member of the uh, uh, EU, and the fact that, and, and we're not any much better in the United States. People are living on their credit cards. A nation's living on a credit card, and and they're bankrupt. And they continue to live as if this doesn't matter. And as soon as somebody gets a dose of reality, which has happened in Greece, all of a sudden the people rise up. And they react to it, and you, there were a number of riots over the summer as uh, Greece tried to uh, enforce an austerity program. And now that they just reached this agreement in the EU last week and that they're going to uh, bring this around and they're going to uh, try to solve the debt problem. And what happened today? What happened today is the prime minister comes out and says, well, you know, the people really don't like this austerity thing. They don't, they don't want to have to have to pay their bills, so we're going to have to take this as a referendum to the people, and, and the market's crashed again today. So this, this is going to continue. We have this whole uh, Occupy Wall Street movement uh, that's been going on here for the last uh, five or six weeks, and it's uh, resulted in some violence in a few places and a certain amount of anti-Semitism in other places as they're saying, um, you know, <clears throat> we want to fire all the bankers. What they're saying is fire all the Jewish bankers. And you're seeing more and more anti-Semitism developing uh, with, within these these particular movements. So it is a it's a mess. Why? Because people have rejected God. They've rejected absolutes. And a manifestation of rejected absolutes is that you reject law. You think that you can make the law mean whatever you want the law to mean uh, to fit your own personal pleasure. And so this is really uh, the extreme of antinomianism. And we're seeing this, uh, getting back to our topic in Acts, we're seeing this in our study on, uh, that I introduced a couple of weeks ago on understanding a biblical view of economics. A biblical view of economics is based on reality. 
reality as God defined it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not, not going to find economists out there who are conservative and whose views of economics and money doesn't fit a biblical pattern. It does because they're realists, not because they're biblical. Uh, but as Christians, we want to start with what the Bible says and then build our view of economics and money uh, from the Bible because we want to be as closely aligned in our thinking uh, to the way God actually created things, uh, which means that we want to be aligned to uh, we want to be aligned to reality. We don't want to be living in a fantasy, so we have to come to understand uh, these particular things. Now, when we get into um, we got into this study a little bit last time, and I defined some things for you, some basic economic terms, capitalism, communism, socialism. Uh, capital, and I took these definitions intentionally right off of Wikipedia, so we couldn't be, I couldn't be accused of saying, well, you're just going to conservative sources. That really isn't what those terms mean. So we just focused on these, these terms, and I didn't take everything that they said, just the, the key definition. Capitalism. Uh, they generally defined as an economic system where the means of production are privately owned. That means ownership of property, the freedom to own property, which means you can use it and dispose of it how you will because you are the owner of property. And that this, uh, the means of production are privately owned, operated from pro- for profit, from inbe- investment, and in competitive Markets. I also made the point capitalism uh, exists in a variety of different forms. Rarely in history have we ever seen a true free market economy. Usually the government or somebody's always in there trying to uh, control or manipulate things. And don't get the impression that at any time in our lives have we ever seen a free market economy in the United States. The the economy in the United States has been drastically uh, manipulated by the government uh, since uh, the election of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, but it it was even before that, not to the degree that that Roosevelt did it, but it was before that. Going, you go back to uh, tariffs in the 19th century, which was just a means to control competition, uh, so that uh, U.S. products would have less. Uh, problems with competition from uh, from uh, foreign products. So we have capitalism on the one hand, then you have communism, which is at the other extreme, at least in terms of modern economics, which is de- defined as a social, political, and economic movement that aims at the establishment of a classless and stateless communist society. It really does generate a a war, a, a class warfare. Uh, which we see elements of similar to this in our own time where the poor are through various methods being encouraged to uh, be jealous of and to want to take property and money away from those who have more, the rich, and the rich are blamed for all kinds of things. The reality is if the government confiscated all the money of all of the all of the uh, uh, so-called rich in this country, it would only pay off the debt for probably two or three weeks at that. So that's not going to solve the problem. Uh, confiscatory taxation never solves the problem. It just takes the means of production and the means of investment away from the wealthy. So communism uh, is directed towards taking all property 
individual ownership and private property away from the people so that it is all part of a communal, uh, it's communally owned or own, all owned by the nation. The problem with that is nobody has a sense of ownership or responsibility. Everything floats to the lowest common denominator. Everything rolls downhill. And so it breeds a culture of irresponsibility and people who don't want to work. And I used several illustrations last time related to things I saw when I first went over uh, to the uh, former Soviet Union after it broke up. Then I talked about socialism. Socialism, again, is an economic system where the means of production are controlled by the government in such a way as to uh, try to manipulate the end results. And under socialism, you try to guarantee equality of results rather than equality of, of opportunity. And then one, I mentioned that one form of the democrat, of, uh, of socialism, uh, what is popular in Europe is democratic, uh, socialism, uh, believes that both the economy and society should be run, uh, democratically, put that in quotes, that is to meet public needs, not to make profits for a few. That's sort of something you always hear, only a few profit. But the people who make a lot of money spend a lot of money. They just don't take it home and stuff it all in their mattress and sit on it. They spend it. They buy things. They, uh, they invest it in other companies. They invest it in, uh, uh, in the stock market and numerous other things that give jobs to other people so that no, it, it's not a, uh, something they just hoard and keep away from everyone, uh, every, everyone else. Last time as I wrapped up on that point, I didn't have time to share this with you, but I thought that some of you might uh, particularly enjoy this. Uh, most of you are probably aware that we do have a socialist party in the United States. They just don't show up on a lot of uh, uh, presidential tickets, but we do have a Socialist Party of America, and in their October 2009 newsletter, which was posted online, so you can find the website and you can eventually find the news, newsletter and identify this, they identified that in their newsletter they were feeling so cocky after the last election. Before that, they would never have done this. They identified 70 congressional Democrats that caucus with the Socialist Party of America. And... Uh, some of the and they list all of them on on their website. The co-chairs of the party are uh, uh, Lynn Woolsey from California and Raul, uh, I think it's pronounced Grijalva from Arizona. You'd be interested to note that um, Sheila Jackson Lee, local uh, Congresswoman, is a vice chair of the uh, Socialist uh, Party of America caucus uh, in the House. Uh, probably wouldn't surprise you that Dennis Kucinich is also. Uh, some of the others, there aren't too many from Texas who uh, caucus with the socialists. Um, let's see, Eddie Bernice Johnson from up in the Dallas area does. Um, let me see, Barney Frank does. That probably doesn't surprise anybody. Maxine Waters, Henry Waxman, Charlie Rangel, uh, Barney Frank. These are just a few who caucus with the uh, socialist uh, caucus in the House. Just thought you would be encouraged to know that we have such a uh, uh, lovely, wonderful representatives in Congress. Okay, as I pointed out last time, we got into this. The Bible isn't an economics textbook, but it gives us a framework for understanding and evaluating everything, including economics. And the foundation is really understanding the divine institutions. I think this organization, 
of the divine institutions is foundational to understanding and evaluating many, many things in life, and we have to understand them. There are five, the way I organize them. Well, that didn't really show up. Uh, Let me just go to the end. There we go. Now we can see it. The first three all occur before the fall. Individual responsibility is the first. Marriage is the second. Family is the third. Each of these occur and are established and instituted by God before there's any sin. And that tells us a couple of things. It tell, First of all, we have to recognize this means that the reason we have these things instituted has nothing to do with sin or controlling sin or dealing with the consequences of sin. Therefore, the reason they are instituted is to promote productivity among the human race and to enhance the life of human beings as opposed to restraining evil. Uh, the next two that come in uh, are come in after the fall. Government and nations are instituted after the fall, and their primary purpose is to restrain human evil. But the first three are designed to promote uh, productivity, to promote happiness uh, in the human race. Individual responsibility takes place when God created Adam and he placed Adam in the garden and he gave him everything he needed for food, but there was a test. And that test was that he uh, was a test of obedience and that he was not to eat of one tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Adam was placed in the garden, he had responsibilities Now, sometimes when we think of responsibilities, especially if your sin nature is oriented a certain way, you sort of think, oh, not not in paradise, not in the Garden of Eden. Yes, in the Garden of Eden, they had responsibilities. There was labor, but there was no toil, okay? Now, there's an important distinction there. They had responsibilities, and there was work to be done. And this is indicated by uh, several passages in in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 26 to 28. We read, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. This is stated in a third-person type of uh, imperative. This is a command uh, stated in a third-person Uh, uh, plural, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God places Adam, and and after he creates Eve, Eve, over all of the resources on the earth. And this idea of ruling isn't the idea of being a tyrannical uh, abuser over the planet, the the uh, green movement, the uh, hyper-environmentalists uh, think that this is one of the most horrible verses in the Bible because this justifies the rape of the land. That is just an absolutely irrational distortion of the meaning of the passage, and it shows that they don't understand anything about the context. There's no sin or evil at this point. Man is given the uh, responsibility to rule which means to govern, to administer, and to manage all of the resources that God has put on the planet. 
both the biological resources in terms of the animals and the plants, but also the mineral resources. And it is man's job then to investigate the creation and to learn the properties of, of all of the resources that God has given them and how to properly use them and responsibly use them so that he can uh, rule over the planet. It is not put there to exploit and to destroy the resources that God put there. And initially, because there's no sin, there is uh, man is given all of the herb of the field to eat, so he and all of the animals are uh, gramnivorous. They are not carnivores, and they, there's no death, so that it is a perfect, perfect environment. Uh, verse 27, 28 goes on to state, say that God created man in his own image. In his image, God created him male and female, so that both male and female are equally in the image and likeness of God. And then in verse 28, God said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's another command. So there was, this is part of man's responsibility as a ruler over all of nature is that he is also to be fruitful and multiply. He was to fill the earth and to subdue the earth. None of this is done within a context of evil, self-centeredness, or any of that because it's perfect, perfect environment. And he is to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves, moves upon the earth. And then God said in verse 29, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth in which there is life, I've given every green herb for food, and it was so. So that is what brings us to the end of the creation week. And then in the second chapter, we have a more in-depth analysis of what happened on the sixth day of creation, uh, what happened when God created man, and he put him in the garden, and uh, in verse 15 of chapter 2, we read, then God... Uh, the, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. That's part of his responsibility. He, ha he is to labor as a steward, an administrator under God over creation, but it's not toilsome. Remember, it's not until after the fall, after sin, when God addresses the man and he says, Cursed is the ground. For your sake and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring, uh, bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So you have toil and sweat and thorns and thistles. But that doesn't come in until after the flood. Now, we can't relate to that. So before the flood, we have non-sweaty, non-toilsome labor. It's not laborious, but it, it, there, there, were, there was responsibilities to produce from the land, from the garden. There is production involved. And so we see that the very idea of, of labor, being a craftsman, being a worker, being an artist, artisan, creating things, is part of what it means to be in the image of, of God. The very first picture we see of God in the creation week, he is he is doing what? He is creating. 
He is forming animals. He forms man from the dust of the ground. He is pictured there as someone who is working with his hands. So this gives great honor to to the whole aspect of work. It only gets perverted and distorted uh, after the fall. So individual responsibility is the first divine institution. Now, there are a number of different aspects to this first divine institution that needs need to be brought out. And I'm just going to mention them now, and then we'll come back and look at them a little more next time. First of all is the idea of volition. Man has an option. He can choose to obey God or choose to disobey God. So there's volition involved. Second thing is the idea of accountability. He's accountable to an authority over him for what he does with the resources given him, with the time that's given to him and with the other resources. And then the third thing we see that's part of, uh, that's part of individual responsibility is that he is, uh, he's involved in responsible uh, labor, that is, serving God uh, in terms of administering the planet and developing the planet under the authority of God. All of this is contained in those basic five mandates of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue the earth, and to rule the earth. So if economics is the study of value, and that value is going to be impacted by the amount of labor that goes into producing things, then we see that from the very beginning there is value placed by God upon human labor and human uh, human work. And so this begins to lay a foundation for us in understanding uh, one of the core elements of of, um, of of economics. So we'll just stop there, and uh, next time uh, we'll come back, pick up here, and develop in terms of what the Bible teaches, develop the basic ideas on uh, economics. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Uh, we're reminded as we study economics how many times you use these terms in, in relation to our own salvation, uh, terms like redemption, uh, expiation, uh, the debt of sin, and that you paid that debt for us so that uh, we no longer are creditors, but we have the sin penalty paid for, again, an economic term. And so to accept that, we simply trust in Christ. So many terms relate to economics. Father, help us as we study these things uh, to uh, understand them and how they apply to both personal finances as well as uh, national finances. And then, Father, we continue to pray for Israel. We continue to pray for uh, this nation that we might continue to be a support for Israel and recognizing that that doesn't mean that everything that Israel does is right. That's not the issue. The issue is we believe they have a right to their to their national homeland, that that has been uh, legally, historically, and biblically established, and that since this is their homeland and their nation, they have a right to defend it, and that they are still your chosen people. And so we continue to pray for uh, Israel, pray for the Jewish people, and pray for this nation that we might continue to be a, a steadfast support 
for the state of Israel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.